Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Adam Rindy, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Today, I speak with the microbiologist, Dr. Amy Proel. She is an expert in autoimmunity. She has a very strong take on what is underneath autoimmune conditions, and you are in for a treat. This is just a wealth of information. I look forward to you hearing this and sharing this with your friends and loved ones. The gist of it is that she looks at the ecology of the body and pathogens known as pathobionts that may be driving autoimmunity and gives us a paradigm to look at how to intervene early into the autoimmune process and perhaps taking a more holistic approach to addressing autoimmune conditions through looking at the microbiota. Listen in and please share this widely. Um, If you could do me a favor, if you're listening in iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, please like my podcast. This has been a joy of mine to share this podcast with you, and I'd really like to get the word out to other people. So without further ado, listen in to Dr. Amy Proal. Dr. Proal, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And um, we uh, just caught up a little bit before starting, and I appreciate getting the chance to kind of dive into some really interesting topics today. Um, one of the things I'd like to kind of jump off um, starting to talk about is the microbiome because it's fascinating to a lot of us and and it's sort of a unifying aspect of medicine. And I'd like to just kind of kind of hear from you um, first how you got involved with your current area of study, what led you to it, and and then we could just talk a little bit about how the microbiome has. Uh, unified so much of science and medicine? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's in and of itself, almost a, a really long conversation to, to talk about the microbiome, but it's, it is central, like you say, to um, better understanding what's happening in both, I think, human health and disease at the moment. Um, and so in terms of my story, getting involved with the microbiome, it actually started because I had some health problems myself. And so they started after um, an infection. Um, I basically got mono and didn't get better. Um, and so I was already, this was, I was a student at Georgetown university at the time, a pre-med student. And I became interested in trying to understand why that would be a thing, why I would get an infection and then get a lot of, to be honest, persistent chronic symptoms. Right. And when I started looking at the literature, um, I could tell that we were focusing on about five to 10 pathogens in a sense that could be involved in any kind of human disease. And we were in a way assuming that those organisms always sort of leave the body after they infect. Um, And it didn't seem like a very broad picture to me of of the range of how um, organisms in the body might be acting. And so this was around 2003 and 2004. I actually, what what I did originally was go and kind of look at work that had been done in the 1950s, 1960s, up to the 70s in microbiology, which 
was a fascinating and informative time in microbiology. And at that time, there were a lot of researchers who were beginning to study. They would, you know, take different human tissue, but blood tissue, and look for organisms in in those uh, tissues and in people, honestly. And they were finding a huge number of organisms. In fact, there are some incredible textbooks and books um, that these you can still read today with beautiful electron microscopy images of organisms and tissue and blood. And, and these researchers, um, so basically when I started reading that, I was thinking like, wow, there are so many more organisms in the human body than it really seems that we hear about normally, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happened with those researchers is a whole other story. They were somewhat sidelined after a while and their work was pushed more to the fringe because the theory of autoimmunity gained so much popularity. And the theory of autoimmunity contends the body's sterile. So it's like their work didn't quite jive with what was being pushed as the main theory for uh, inflammation and chronic illness at the time. So their work was kind of put on pause. Then around the same time when I was looking back at their work in 2003, 2004, there were some early studies in which research teams, like current research teams, started using different tools to look for microbes and viruses in the human body. And so these earlier researchers had been using culture-based techniques largely. So they're in a lab, you know, kind of picture your, you know, average scientist, white coat, you know, taking test tubes, this, vials, petri dishes. They were doing all that, right? Very well, to be honest. But in the 2000s, after the human genome was sequenced around the year 2000, and that was done with computer-based tools, right? So in simple terms, you can use computers to be able to identify the DNA or RNA of different organisms that can persist in basically any ecosystem. And you can identify that, that DNA or RNA is their basically genetic signature. So it's similar to us as humans. We all know that we have a, a genome, right? A human genome. That code is unique to each of us, right? We know none of us have the same genome. Well, it's similar to for bacteria and other organisms. Uh, different species or even strains of the of different organisms have um, certain DNA or RNA, you know, backbones, and you can identify them based off that. And so these computer tools you take advantage of that, and they can kind of assign what organisms are there based off um, that the DNA and RNA signatures. And so that really just these technologies, then it became so much easier to study organisms in the human body and we could do it with a, a second sort of incredible level of accuracy and, and knowledge. So what happened is after the human genome was sequenced, some research teams began to turn those same tools onto the, looking for organisms in the human body. And those studies are fast. They came back, they were, you know, I think at that time expecting to find a couple bacterial species in certain areas of the body and they were coming back with you know, essentially reads um, that the computer was coming out just saying that there were organisms that were there, you know, DNA and RNA that was not even corresponding to anything that we know or that we've named, right? Mm -hmm. So it's essentially like a, it's sometimes called like an operational taxonomic unit or something. You, you come up with this DNA or RNA sequence that should pertain to a microbe, but we don't even have that microbe in our databases. We don't even have that right yet as an organism listed, you know, sort of like if you went into the rainforest and we know we haven't found all the, or, you know, animals in the rainforest. It's just, there's still so many that we, you know, which is incredible. We have not even classified and named. Well, it's the same as the human body. So this, this time was just incredibly interesting as they, as these teams began to turn more and more tools to the study of microbes, there were just so many new organisms discovered that the human microbiome project started around that time, which was an effort um, 
essentially funded by the NIH to begin to just say, look, we can now find more organisms in the human body, what is there? And they started doing a study of the, I think it was the gut, the skin, the oral, like basically the gut and the body's surfaces. And that resulted in a long series of studies showing that there are just incredible number of organisms in those areas of the body that we didn't know were there before. And those organisms, those, they're communities of organisms. So basically, let's just say, let's use your gut as the main example. In your gut, there is this, an ecosystem of organisms that really is almost complex, as complex as the rainforest. And the key is that they are not necessarily just sitting there all uh, acting alone. They interact with each other so that sometimes their activity in the body, um, if they, they affect so many human processes. They affect how our immune systems work. They create proteins and metabolites that can, you know, adjust how our human pathways signal. They can do all, they do that all the time. They produce neurotransmitters and different products that our human bodies use as part of our human signaling for controlling you name it, hormones, appetite, anything. So they're so involved with our biology, but they're also doing that by interacting together in communities. And that's something we really hadn't thought about much until we um, began to, you know, quote unquote, discover this human microbiome more. And so that is what I have continued. I got very interested early on in that, and that's what I've continued to study since then. Wow. That was really helpful to see the, the process of how the microbiome was discovered and where you know where it's being applied the studies being applied today um the you know, the one thing that's when you were taking us through that was really interesting that crossed my mind is just how many years and years and years we the this relationship was just operating in the background very well for most people and then now we're trying to figure out when it's not operating well um when there is some type of disease process that's being potentially triggered by the microbiome and how that's interfacing with the common chronic conditions that we know of today. And, um, you know, it's just fascinating that, you know, for years, you know, we all knew that certain microbes would cause infection, but now we're at a point where we're actually looking at a number of common chronic diseases and looking at the, the microbe relation is the potentially the primary trigger or a driver of the disease? Yes, exactly. So, it, you know, since that earlier time, almost most well-studied chronic inflammatory conditions have been tied to what's called dysbiosis or imbalance of the human microbiome. Um, and so that's essentially the idea that these communities of organisms in and on us, and maybe I'll clarify a little bit more. When I'm talking about the human microbiome, um, some people refer to the microbiome as just or the organisms that persist in the human gut. And that's reasonable because that's where we first started to look for these communities more. Um, a lot of the early studies were human gut only. Um, but since that time, um, we have, you know, increasingly different research teams have turned those same tools on other areas of the body. And we realize that the microbiome extends beyond the gut. I think that's very important to understand. So in it, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like most any human tissue and blood is really sterile. It, it depends. There's still, we know there's a lung microbiome, for an example. There's a bladder microbiome. There's a, you know, appendix microbiome. There's a, you know, a blood microbiome, to be honest, which is still the blood microbiome, which is sometimes called the circulatory microbiome, is still sort of a matter of debate now. 
Um, I don't think it should be a matter of debate. I think the evidence is clear that there is a blood microbiome um, in people, but that is really such a shift in thinking from medicine and science because the blood has been assumed to be sterile for so long in science and medicine that the idea of the blood microbiome is taking a longer time to sort of become formally accepted as an accepted thing. Um, and so, so basically, number one, we're still in a period of transition in terms of, you know, incorporating the microbiome into the study of chronic inflammatory disease. But we now realize that there are all these organisms in these different body sites. And, you know, I was, when I was first talking about the microbiome, the earliest studies were done on bacteria. Um, and there are just, there are hundreds of thousands of bacterial species in, in these human ecosystems at any given time. But what's important to add is by now, in you know, the last, I would say, two to three years, um, we've, <laughs> the science community has developed and perfected these computer-based tools even more to better identify viruses. So they were best, these tools were best at finding bacteria originally, but now we can use yet other methods to search for viruses in these same ecosystems, these same essentially microbial communities that are in our tissue and blood. And that has been almost the most eye-opening of all in that this, the viral communities are called the human virome. Um, and they're part of the the microbiome and the virome are connected. So the microbiome refers to back, so I just want to be clear, it's not just bacteria. There are bacteria in these communities, viruses, there are fungi, there are archaea, which are organisms that are like bacteria. And then there are all, there's, there's parasites, there's all kinds of different organisms that are all interacting. But just alone, when we look at the viruses in these communities alone, which is referred to as the virome, there are so many of them now that we, that we did not realize were there that it's mind blowing. So there's a certain especially type of virus that's very prolific in the human body and honestly is the most, um, the, if you want to call viruses an organism, the most, um, the most uh, populated organism on earth and they're, they're viruses, but this certain kind is called a bacteriophage. And a bacteriophage is a virus that infects a bacteria and then modulates that bacteria's behavior because the virus has infected it, right? Mm -hmm. You follow me there? So the current estimate right now, actually, from a team at Stanford that's studying the, this virome, is that there are about a quadrillion of these viruses in human tissue and blood at any given moment in us. Mm -hmm. So we basically have about our, our bacterial cells to a certain extent outnumber our human cells and then the viral um, members of these communities drastically even outnumber the bacterial inhabitants of these communities. So we have all these layers of different organisms together in these communities and they are, very, they are a tremendous number of them and that's again why their collective activity becomes so important. And so going back to like what you were saying about chronic inflammatory disease, what we notice now a lot is a trend in which these communities collectively move like together towards a state of imbalance. And that is again referred to as dysbiosis. And that is, a, is an issue in most chronic inflammatory conditions. Okay, yeah. So let's, let's go into that a little bit more. And um, the, we have these two main branches of the immune system, which I'll, if you could set the stage with that um, in a second here. And okay. then we have this situation where, you know, kind of a model of autoimmunity where, which you, what you're working on, if you could take us through that, you know, say comparing 
uh, someone without dysbiosis and mm -hmm. their their ecosystem and you know, let's say the gut or some other cavity of the body, and then what happens in the autoimmune state and how that's activated, if you can take us through some basics with that. So yes, yeah, so basically the classical theory of autoimmunity um, assumes that the body is sterile. Because when the theory of autoimmunity was developed sort of in the 70s and 80s, that research that I mentioned before, the microbiologists who were kind of picking up on organisms and tissue and blood was pushed to the side enough that the consensus at the time was still that the human body is largely sterile. Maybe you know, 20 organisms could infect humans. That was about it. That's the, the running idea there. So what happened is patients with chronic inflammatory conditions would increasingly you know, be studied or seen by doctors, and they would detect what are called antibodies in these patients. And we understand, I think more of us understand on antibodies already in the sense of them being connected to infection. So for example, when you get sick with an infection like the flu, the immune system creates an anti antibodies in response to the flu virus. It's sort of like Y-shaped proteins that are specifically geared in size and shape to be able to recognize that virus and then recruit other immune cells to the area to try to kill it. That's how we get theoretically better from the flu, is this immune response towards the pathogen. So antibodies form in that case. But in these patients with chronic inflammatory disease, the assumption was that their bodies were sterile. And so when they found antibodies in those patients, they had to come up with a new explanation. And that explanation is the theory of autoimmunity. What they postulated is that the immune system in these patients somehow, and it's still not very clear how, um, that's still a matter of debate today if you wanna pursue it, somehow the immune system be, goes crazy, loses tolerance sort of to itself, and begins to generate antibodies in response to self, in response to the human. It's like the immune system is attacking itself in a sense. Um, and that was the explanation that they came up for, for why these antibodies were created in a sterile, uh, sterile patients, right? With sterile bodies. And so that's the basis of the theory of autoimmunity. The, the idea that the immune system sort of screws up, begins to attack itself, and then that results in inflammation and chronic symptoms. And then the treatments that developed based on that theory um, all center on immunosuppression, which is you know, drugs like corticosteroids and other medications that just knock down the immune system and try to prevent it from creating these so-called autoantibodies in response to self, right? Mm -hmm. So the human microbiome environment, when we were able to, what I'm going to call discover them, which was essentially finally really un begin to understand the extent to which these communities persist in and on us, these microbial and viral communities. When that happened, when I was telling you in the early 2000s and now, we really have to sit down and reconsider and say, wait a second, in these patients with chronic inflammatory disease, when we see an antibody, is there a possibility that that antibody was not created in response to self, but was created in response to any of these persistent organisms in human tissue and blood that we did not know were there before? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is, is, is yes. There are an increasing number of studies which show that what we call autoantibodies are actually being created originally in response to pathogen peptides or organisms in these human communities that we harbor. Um, and that is the Old, you know, the root cause driver of their production in the first place. Mm -hmm. There can be some cases in which this comes down to basically what's 
called molecular biology an understanding of this is that there are so many organisms in the human body. There's only so many sizes and shapes that, that things can have in the body. And so sometimes if an antibody is created in response to a pathogen with a certain sort of sequence and shape, then there might be a human peptide or a sequence in the body that's similar. And the immune system might occasionally attack that sequence or peptide, whatever, instead of the pathogen that it's supposed to be attacking. Right. That's called cross-reactivity. It's essentially the antibody has a broader level of action, so it might target human tissue in addition to the organism it's trying to target. But that's, that's actually just called, referred to as like kind of collateral damage. And we're not even sure how much that's happening. Um, it might be happening in some cases, but honestly, the, the most important trend to distill from this is that in so-called autoimmune disease, um, we've really, it might not be autoimmunity anymore. It might be similar to more of an infectious disease model in which the immune system is mounting a correct response to pathogens that are able to persist in human microbiome environment communities. And that is resulting in the chronic inflammation and chronic symptoms that patients experience with these conditions. Mm, okay. So um, I've heard the term, um, like it, I think maybe from you um, on one of your talks was, it's almost like there's a friendly fire environment um, where the, can you kind of well, pack that I think in? The most important concept to understand when it comes to how this would go down is that we, I would say the media at this moment for a while is a little bit overly positive on the human microbiome. So yes, they're the organisms in our bodies when these communities, these ecosystems, when we're in a state of health, they are essentially working in a functioning in a matter that's balanced with us, a state of homeostasis. But these microbes are not necessarily all good by any means. They all favor their survival. I mean, they're, they're living in us in a sense, and they're all trying to survive um, in and of their own right. So what happens is there's, there are pathogens in these communities. So, so let's say just your gut. It's not just good organisms. There are organisms who are acting in a way that benefits you, but there are also these organisms or most organisms are what are called pathobionts. So that's a new term, but I think it's such a necessary term. And what it means is that almost any microbe in the human body can act in, it can act as sort of what's called a commensal, which is it can be kind of in tune with its activity with human health and with our biology, or it can change its activity, it can change its gene expression, it can change how it acts to act as a pathogen under certain conditions especially conditions of immunosuppression or imbalance. And so you can have these, conditions, these uh, issues in which a person's microbiome environment communities, the, the organisms in them can increasingly evolve to act more as pathogens than as beneficial organisms. And that's part of this process, right? So we, you know, that is really important to understand because we usually... And we still do this. We, when someone goes, is that, there's this organism in the human body, they go, is it good or is it bad? Right. And what I'm trying to say is there's a gray area on that. There, you can have the same organism. Two people could have the same organism. For example, they could harbor E. coli. And the E. coli in my body could be acting very differently than the E. coli in your body. And that's because organisms can turn on and off their genes so they can kind of act in different ways and develop different sort of 
functions depending on their atmosphere and their activity. It's a little like people. I, this is, I mean, think of any person. We're capable, most people are capable of good activity or of bad activity, right? Mm -hmm. We're not a good person or there's very few good people or categorically bad people, right? Mm -hmm. We're capable of a spectrum of activity. That goes for most organisms in the human body as well. Mm -hmm. So with that understanding, we can see that in a lot of chronic inflammatory conditions, depending on what's going on with the immune system, the environment, depending on, you know, what's the patient is being exposed to in terms of, you know, infection, environmental insults, you know, different chemical exposures, problems, all of anything that kind of affects the human immune system or human balance can allow these pathobionts, these organisms in the body to evolve to a state where they begin to act much more in their own uh, favor than in ours. Yeah. That's the driver of this imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. So let's take one of these potential pathobionts, um, Prevotella copri. Yeah. Um, this is talked about with rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. So susceptible, we, we all could, we all are carrying, likely carrying maybe some aspect, some amounts of this species in our gut or our, our microbiome in general. Yeah. Um, so a population that may be immunosuppressed may be more vulnerable to Prevotella copri being part of the, what would maybe be seen as um, commensal, but it can move into a pathobiont um, role. Right, exactly. So that's, it's a good example. So what really the human immune system is on our side. Uh, the theory of autoimmunity, I think, and I've written papers on this, I think the theory of autoimmunity should be dropped. I know that sounds um, a little bit dramatic, but I think that it's the theory of autoimmunity is impeding us from actually understanding that the human immune system is mostly working in our favor all the time. It is actually an active, uh, healthy immune response is one of the best things that a person can sustain because these organisms in our, in our blood and tissue and stuff, they they, as we say, they can evolve to act more as pathogens. And what prevents them from doing that is the immune response. So the immune system essentially keeps organisms in check. Sort of like I think um, in one article, I compared that to kids in a classroom at a school, right? So imagine that you have a classroom of kids and they're all, there's a teacher in the room and that teacher is the immune system, right? So when the teacher's in the room, the students are all, you know, theoretically doing their work, you know, not, not talking, you know, completing their assignments, they're being monitored, right? They're acting correctly. But let's say the teacher leaves the room. That's what happens when the immune system gets knocked down or suppressed or, you know, gets uh, impacted by any number of environmental factors that either distract or disable it, right? That's kind of as the analogy would be the teacher leaving the room. And now those uh, microbes, which are the students in the classroom, you know, they might, they can act in a lot of different ways. There might be some instigators in there. So you might have, you know, a certain kid that's like, hey, the teacher left. Well, that would be an example of, of a really clear pathobiont like Prevotella, like you're saying. This organism all of a sudden can say, wait, I can act a lot differently. I can act much more as a pathogen in this body because the immune system isn't in good shape anymore. And so what that means is that, yeah, it's going to, that organism Prevotella will change its gene expression to express what are called virulence factors. Um, that means that these factors help it better persist inside the cells of the immune system, for example, which is definitely not optimal for us, but great for a pathogen. It can kind of hide out. And it also mean that organisms um, 
even if an organism is in the gut, for example, once it evolves to become more of a pathobiont or a pathogen like Prevotella, um, it can leave the gut. Uh, the gut lining often becomes, uh, you know, permeable or leaky in simple terms under conditions of inflammation that can be associated with this dysbiosis. And so a growing number of organisms can sort of leak out of the gut into the blood. Microbes leak from the salivary, from our mouths into the blood all the time. That can be a lot of pathogens in those communities. There are already organisms that are in the blood. Mm -hmm. um, so we can have, and you can see how that organism can then almost in a sense, even get into um, synovial fluid or the joints of patients with rheumatoid arthritis or, or something like that, right? So yeah. there'll be studies where if you use the right technologies, the right tools, you can find organisms like this in um, you know, joint fluid or whatever. And once they're there, they are not our friends anymore. Now mm -hmm. they're acting as pathogens. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they an array of symptoms. Yeah. yeah, this really, that was awesome. This really cleared up something for me. And I now I'm I'm seeing a connection. I would just want to run this by you and see maybe this can be our next little segment here. But so yeah. you, if you're if you're diagnosed with an autoimmune condition and you have a microbe that's driving the disease and you're put on yeah. immunosuppressive drugs. Yep. And nothing's done about that driver. Right. Are we chasing our tail? Yes. I honestly think that immunosuppressive drugs are driving one of the biggest drivers of the current epidemic of chronic disease. In that what we are doing is using an antiquated model of autoimmunity that no longer correlates with our understanding of the organisms that can persist in the human body. The theory of autoimmunity, like I said, contends that the body is sterile when it is actually literally teeming with quadrillions of organisms. Um, that change has not been made in the, you know, in the essentially the top sort of tiers of medicine, right? So we have this really weird atmosphere, I'm not gonna lie, at the moment where, yes, a patient goes to a doctor, the number one thing that you would wanna look at now would be what's the state of your microbiome? What organisms might be acting up in you? You know, that isn't taken into consideration. Instead, we assume autoimmunity um, immediately and we put the patient on exactly immunosuppressive drugs that knock down the immune system in an attempt to you know, curb the inflammation and the so-called autoantibody production. That, what that does, like in that analogy where I was talking about you know, kids in a classroom, we're deliberately knocking the teacher out. You see, we're knocking down the immune system. What that does is if you knock down the immune system, the patient will feel better for a bit because the inflammation that's you know, generated by when the immune system, I mean, okay, let me clarify this. When the immune system is trying to target a pathogen, there will be um, chronic inflammation. So again, let's go back to just when you get the flu, right? So let's, you have the flu virus. Now, the flu virus is not causing symptoms really by eating your cells or something like that. What's really generating the most symptoms um, when you get the flu is the immune system is trying to attack and kill the flu virus. And in order to do that, it has to release inflammatory cytokines, these proteins, and it has to, it's essentially almost like, like a war. Like if we had to, if there was an enemy, we'd have to fire, um, sorry, like on a battlefield, you'd have to fight it first for it to die, right? Mm -hmm. That battle results in inflammation. There's a battle that's likely going on in a sense that we, there may be a stalemate, but the immune system is trying to um, attack the organisms in the body that may be, um, you know, driving uh, symptoms in these diseases. And what we're doing is just saying, no, 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 stop that attack. Let's shut down the immune system. 
um, that's going to result in less symptoms. But like you made that point, the underlying cause is now the, if the pathogens are actually the drivers of the problem, that pathogen can now spread with even greater ease because we've knocked out the immune system. So we're treating the symptoms and not the root cause. Yeah. And that is a big problem. And that's once we get patients on these immunosuppressive drugs, I'm not sure if, as you have, as a clinician, you'll get this pattern that at least with patients, with doctors I've worked with, where for a couple years, people feel sometimes a bit better even a year or so because their inflammation is being curtailed and their symptoms feel better. But over time, they don't get better. They need higher doses of the same drugs. They need more immunosuppression or they begin to develop you know, more comorbid conditions. So you'll see a patient who came in with rheumatoid arthritis and then now after a couple of years also has a thyroid problem and a this and a, you know, and there's actually, I think a statistic now that, um, you know, at least 12% of the American population has five or more diagnoses, you know, at a certain time. Okay, so when I'm working with a patient with an autoimmune condition or perceived autoimmune condition, we do look at the gut microbiome Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we're always discussing, and I'm speaking with my fellow colleagues and also with my patients, is well, we see these potential pathogens, and you know, we we just don't want to kind of go after them with an antimicrobial because we we really, in some sense, we, we might, but in other senses, we don't know what the unintended consequences of that. Mm-hmm. might be it seems like bacteriophages are kind of more like missionaries in the immune system well that they, they can be more specific especially the ones we've discovered with e coli is that where things might be going with this is to understand maybe how to support the body with bacteriophages or are we still looking at more of a antiviral antimicrobial medication approach wow yeah that's a great question i definitely think that so what you're referring to is called phage therapy, which is the idea that we could, because bacteriophages are viruses that infect bacteria and often kill them in that, uh, by doing that, or at least modulate them so that they can't really act as pathogens anymore, um, that we could take advantage of that relationship and we could give a patient, let's say a patient had a, a bacterial species in the gut that was really acting up in a certain condition. Well, maybe we could give deliberately give them one of these bacteriophages that would infect that bacterial species, and that would be a way to to treat the the issue. The problem with that, um, I'm not saying that that's not uh, in the future. I just think that, and I would say a lot of people agree with me that we need to better study phages in the human body in the first place a bit more before we use them as therapeutics so regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, reason being is that, like I said. Um, almost three years ago, someone would have told you there might've been, I don't know, a thousand phages in the body. But now that we've been using more advanced tools, like I said, these are numbers of phages that we, I, even me, I'm a very open person to how many organisms are in the body. And even I have trouble comprehending how many phages there are in the body. When we we use the number quadrillion, that's, that's really insane. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are so many of them. And what that means is that Phages, um, what we're starting to realize is that phages um, are controlling the bacteria, uh, the activity of bacteria in our ecosystems greatly. So there's even a paper recently published called, um, I think it's like bacteriophages modulate the human microbiome, right? And what we're meaning is that 
you have, um, like I said, almost 10 times more of these phages than you have bacteria. And so their activity is controlling the activity of bacteria in these communities to a point, depending on who they infect. And so when there's a dysbiosis, when again, we're talking about these entire communities shifting to a state where um, people can develop chronic symptoms, phages can be drivers of this dysbiosis because they are ultimately modulating the bacteria of the bacteria that are connected to this too, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a growing number of examples in which phage activity is actually a major driver of overall microbiome dysbiosis. So, and that has led to further discoveries in literally the last year. There's I think it's very important. There's a team at Stanford, Paul Volsky's team, who also in the same time period has shown that phages do interact with the human and mammalian immune system. Mm -hmm. So phages can infect human cells. It does create antibodies sometimes in response to phages. Um, phages have all kinds of effects on, on human immunity. So we were assuming until not very long ago that phages only infect bacteria, but they seem to also be able to uh, impact our human cells. And a great example of that comes from um, that team at Stanford. Um, basically, they did a recent study where they were looking at P. aeruginosa, which is a bacteria, a bacterial species that's a major pathogen. They were looking in wounds, I think. So this is a, a wound-associated pathogen sometimes. And they were looking at how this bacterial species could survive in, the, in, in these wounds. And it turns out that the bacteria is infected by a specific phage and that phage actually infects human immune cells that try to target the P. aeruginosa bacteria. So the phage is infecting the phage. Basically, what happened is the an immune cell, the bacteria and phage were the immune cells sort of engulfed them together in a sense, mm -hmm. like the immune system was trying to target them, and the phage. Is, is actually was shown to shut down the immune response in that cell. So the phage modulated that white blood cell's ability to kill the bacteria that it was, that it, it was infecting, okay? Are you follow me on that? Yeah, very that, clever. Right, so this virus is smart because it needs that bacterial host to survive, right? So what it's doing is it's impeding the human immune response so that the bacteria it infects can stay alive, okay? So what that means is when we're looking at a bacterial pathogen now and saying, why is it acting this way? We actually have to say, is it infected by a phage? So we have to go this like level up, right? So knowing that that's a case and there are a growing number of studies that are showing how, you know, essentially phages can act in that sense as a pathogen. I think what needs to happen is we need to study phage activity and how phages can act as pathogens, especially in communities and integrate that knowledge with our understanding of phage therapy that you mentioned first. Yeah. Because it's, it's a scenario a little like probiotics, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. You know, we give people certain bacterial probiotics, and that can be very helpful, but we certainly don't assume that all bacteria should be used as a probiotic, right? Right. So it's going to be very important to understand what phages do so that the phages that we would begin to use for phage therapy we can better know that that phage isn't going to have some other effect that could be a problematic if we use it, you know, as part of a, a, a problem, as a therapy, right? Yeah. So we have to better, we really need to keep studying phages um, in and of their own right, um, in addition to just um, quickly making them therapeutics, right? Yeah. But we could do both, you know, as long as we just, you know, I think we need to keep both subjects running really well at the same time.
Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people very sick out there, you know, with like chronic fatigue syndrome or um, fibromyalgia, and um, in those subpopulations, they're definitely not given immunosuppressive medications mm -hmm. off the bat, even though right. they do fit somewhat into the autoimmune subtype of conditions. Um, yeah. So where would you? where would you start? I mean, it, you know, now that we, we don't know enough about how to move around the microbiome yet. Right. Um, we don't know whether to push it in various different directions. Um, but you know, in my mind, I go right to intestinal permeability issues and right. helping the immune system modulate. Um, but yeah. where does your mind go? So it goes into kind of what we can do now and also what we need to better create. And so what I think needs to happen first is that overall the medical and scientific communities need to better sort of recognize that the theory of autoimmunity is somewhat antiquated. Then they need to, we need to, as a more united uh, research community, better accept the idea that pathogens in these communities may be contributing to these chronic conditions. I mean, that's, that's understood, but it's not yet fully accepted. And so we're at this very important crossroads of we need to, move, first of all, just move that understanding forward. Mm -hmm. Now, when we do that, um, what my hope is, is so there are a couple options. What I think is a very good option actually is, is therapies that try to strengthen the human immune system, right? Or support it. That's literally the opposite of immunosuppression, right? So instead of shutting down the immune system, we could try to support it to better be able to on its own uh, target pathogens and sort of mitigate dysbiosis. Now, the problem with that is that that results in often what's called a Herxheimer reaction. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, yes. Right. So again, if the immune system is activated or supported so that it can better recognize a pathogenic threat, it's going to target that pathogen more. And that will result again in that inflammatory battle I was describing before. And that will cause a temporary rise in symptoms in patients um, while that battle between the immune system and the organism kind of play out. But if the patient can sustain the symptoms from that and the organism is effectively you know, killed, then they can make some real progress with the root cause of their symptoms and they might turn a corner where they actually feel better over time, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I've definitely known a couple different um, clinicians who, who use different um, protocols that strengthen the immune system that results in Herxheimer, but there's some problems with that. Obviously, it's very difficult to, you know, know how much Herxheimer a patient can sustain, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we're not, we don't have good ways, since this is not a, a very commonly studied thing, again, we don't have good testing for what is happening with Herxheimer, right? So we, we would need, we need a lot more, um, a lot more tests, a lot more minds on this, so we can develop testing that better, you know, informs us about that reaction. Also, though, what I would most emphasize is that we need to treat these cases in the most preventative fashion possible. So what happens is we tend, well, whatever, we tend to, you know, have this pattern right now where patients, um, you know, begin to manifest with some symptoms, the conditions labeled autoimmune, or, or even if it's, let's say, ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, or something like that, we just we basically, like we're saying, we just kind of immunosuppress or we just let the symptoms run on if we're going to you know, intervene and strengthen the immune system. So if we do it earlier, this is where I was going with this. So the, 
the patients that a lot of times are treated with these Herxheimer-based therapies or antimicrobial therapies that are out there are usually already very sick when they start them because of the fact that, you know, they've been seeing a lot of doctors and this and a lot of different, you know, uh, theories have been thrown down on what's happening with them. And in, in a lot of cases, they have to wean off immunosuppressive drugs to, you know, try to be able to do stuff that's more antimicrobial immune supportive. At that point, anything that involves Herxheimer is going to be really brutal, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas there have definitely been therapies like that that I've seen people use where if you begin when a, when a patient first says like, I'm not feeling so well, you know, I have a bit of a, you know, a headache, this, I don't feel, I don't have as much energy, you know, as I'd like. If you can intervene at that point and support the immune system and begin to use, you know, certain antimicrobials, that's where I see, I've seen the most progress take place. Mm -hmm. In that, like, there's going to be a lot less Herxheimer and anything along those lines if you catch or address something very early on, right? Yeah. We, as, a, as a medical system, tend to do the opposite. We tend to just, you know, wait until someone gets extremely ill to try anything along those lines. So the first thing would be to better, you know, recognize these conditions and, and begin to treat earlier on. That being said, then there's a lot of natural antimicrobials, a lot of things that people can use in these conditions, but we do need just much more development on that front. Uh, in my opinion, we need more specific uh, antimicrobials, as in antibiotics can be really useful, but they kill a lot of organisms. Mm -hmm. um, so you could take an antibiotic and hope that it would target the pathogen. Let's say there's a, a pathogen that's causing problems in a patient. It might um, be killed by an antibiotic, uh, you know, a common antibiotic, and it's worth trying, but that antibiotic is also going to kill so many other uh, bacterial species in the person that might not, you know, might actually be okay, right? And so we're not, that's a little bit of an overly dramatic thing to do. It's kind of like dropping an atomic bomb on, you know, uh, an area when you really are just trying to address, you know, one threat, right? Yeah. A little overboard. So there are actually some biotech companies in different places that are looking at trying to create antimicrobials that are much more specific to certain organisms or certain communities of organisms, right? As a doctor now, um, as a clinician, you know, like I said, the microbiome environment extends beyond the gut, but mitigating what happens in the gut can have you know, positive flow on activities even to other body sites, right? Yeah. So the gut is a good place to try to intervene because we can intervene more there. So even diet, um, you know, depending on how people eat, um, the food they eat will support or, you know, not support the growth of a lot of different organisms, right? So you can use, you know, diet to kind of mitigate, you know, a, I think low sugar diet makes a lot of sense, you know, sometimes low carbohydrate for a while because a lot of um, organisms that can become pathogenic sort of persist on those sugars and carbohydrates are better able to survive and stay alive. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, at this moment in time, you can do dietary approaches that try to mitigate the microbiome. You can bring in antimicrobials to the best knowledge possible. You can support the immune system in certain ways. Um, there are different kind of protocols out there, but you know, we, I think that what we really do need also is so many more minds on this topic and a research community that's working much harder to look at illness in this capacity so that we can, you know, develop even more strategies along those lines. Oh, that was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, this really resonates with um, what I've seen clinically and um, okay. I think the, uh, especially the aspect of the early intervention yeah and 
giving people tools to, you know, if they have an autoimmune condition, giving them tools when they're seeing early signs of flares. Right. We even started using like heart rate variability as an indicator of an early flare. If we have a baseline heart rate variability um, score and then if people are doing heart rate variability tracking, it is one indication of an early onset of flare, the immune system going through a shift. And so I think, I think we're trying to do that. And I, I think it's great to hear from a researcher that, you know, that, that, that's a valid approach to, uh, to, to go. Um, well, I, I've learned a lot and I could talk to you forever, but I want to really honor your time. And the, uh, I wanted to kind of give you a chance to, um, give us any information about you that you'd like to share um, before we say goodbye for the visit. Uh, thanks, Adam. Um, well, it's been a pleasure to talk. And yeah, it's true, we could talk for a long time. And that's what I love about this topic is there's so much information now exploding on the microbiome, virome, connections to disease, but it's actually very exciting. I think that that's what I'd like to leave people with is a lot of times uh, patients or people will tell me that that this kind of worries them, that the complexity seems overwhelming. And I see it the opposite way. I think that, yes, there's a lot of complexity to this, but that we know right now that medicine is not working very well for most conditions, right? We know people are staying sick. We know that you know diseases are hard to treat. We know the incidence of every almost every chronic condition is going up. I think that the hope in actually addressing the roots of that problem lie in better understanding the activity of the microbiome and virome. And yes, it's complex and everyone has different communities of these organisms and it's gonna require more of a personalized approach to deal with these issues in patients. There's not gonna probably be some magic pill that's gonna cure everyone, but once we begin to better understand these root cause trends, I think there's an incredible capacity for change in what we can do for treatment moving forward and understanding illness. And that's basically why I do what I do. So great. So um, can you just tell us briefly like where people can follow your work? Sure. Um, I basically, the best place would probably be, I have a blog that I try to post um, interviews and information on when I can. It's called microbeminded.com. And on those, in that blog, you can see there's a list of my published papers, but there's also some other stuff. There's some videos that I've tried to make. Um, and I'm planning to try to add more content to that as soon as possible. So that's kind of a good place to just start um, where you can read through some of the stuff I've written in my papers, if that's something you want to do. And then I'm also pretty active on Twitter because I think Twitter is a great place where actually researchers, doctors, and patients are all um, on there kind of sharing their insights. And if you pull those together, you can see a broader picture of a lot of what's going on. So my account on Twitter is microminded too. And I encourage you to follow me and just engage, you know, let me know what you think about what I post. That's so great. Thank you, Dr. Prowal. Um, we look forward to following your work. Um, this really helped solidify a number of concepts that I needed to understand and I'm sure a lot of people needed to understand. So thank you for your time and um, I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Take care. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode with Dr. Amy Prowal. And I wanted to just share a few closing thoughts. If you are a current patient of mine and you have an autoimmune condition, you may be wondering how this episode may influence how I would approach your condition. I will say, speaking as a, as a clinician, these are concepts that we've been having our eye on for years now. 
Um, and I think the fact that this is getting looked at from a research perspective will make us stronger in our ability to manage autoimmune conditions. There have been a number of clinicians for years who have taken an approach similar to this and may have not had the research to back their approaches. So the way I look at this is this allows us to strengthen looking at what are the drivers of autoimmune conditions. This does not mean that we should all run out and quit any medications that have been provided for us through our rheumatologist. It just means that we need to look further and deeper at the autoimmune process and perhaps we will have some results that will lead us to consider if there are different management options down the road. So to me, this is just further deepening what we've already thought about autoimmune conditions from a naturopathic functional medicine perspectives. And we need to support researchers in allowing us to safely approach these conditions using this paradigm um, because the an unmanaged autoimmune condition is very serious. And so at this point, um, the medications at least are doing their best to preserve tissue damage. And if they are not able to stop the process of autoimmunity, they are at the very least preventing damage to organs. Um, and those are the outcomes that, that they're focused on. So hopefully that gives you something to think about in my practice and I'm sure in a number of other naturopathic or functional medicine practices, we will always look at the gut microbiome, intestinal permeability issues, and pathogens as drivers of the autoimmune process, and we'll try to do something about it. And um, I think that is something to continue to, to go deeper into as we learn more about autoimmune process. So thanks for tuning in. I look forward to further episodes with you. Please, again, like this episode or like my podcast um, in iTunes and in Stitcher and Spotify. Get the word out. Let's get this podcast into the players of all types of people who are interested in health, clinicians, researchers, patients, people who are health enthusiasts. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.